We read today from the book of Galatians, beginning in the second chapter and the 11th verse. But when Cephas, this is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result being that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Would you bow your head, please? As we join our hearts together, as we set this time apart to worship our God, would you think back to a moment when you were absolutely desperate and you cried out to God and he made a way? Would you just say thank you, Jesus? With our eyes bowed, our our hearts humbled, can you think of a time when it just didn't seem like anything was working in your life, but God made all things work together? What seemed like a curse ended up to be an incredible blessing. Won't you just say thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, the name that is above all names. Jesus, the sweetest sound we know. Jesus, you are our everything, and we are lost without you. Forgive us of any ways that we have failed you. And as we remember, it breaks our heart. But how thankful we are to know that you are faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us. And we pray that in this time together that your heart will be blessed by what you experience in ours. 
open your holy word for us today. May your spirit speak to each of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's many translations and paraphrases of the scripture. If I was to paraphrase this particular passage, I'd say something like, uh, there was this one day when Peter was having some good old pork ribs with some friends. And oh my, they were good. They were like nothing that Peter had ever eaten before. Nothing. And uh, he was just having the best old time with his friends. And they were having fellowship and enjoying a great meal together. And uh, they were just having the best old time with his new friends in a new city until, well, his old friends from Jerusalem showed up. And about that time, Peter's eyes got real big. And about halfway through that rib bite that he was about to take, he kind of just dropped that rib behind his head. And he said to his brothers, Shalom, fellas. Now that very well may be a kind of an embellishment, and I know it is on the historical account. But it does kind of give you an idea, a sense of what's going on in this passage. And whatever is going on in this passage, we can be very sure that the Apostle Paul is very angry about it. And I say Paul is angry because he uses such phrases as, I opposed him to his face. And he stood condemned. And he calls him a hypocrite three different times. And he says, you're not being straightforward. And so what is it that Paul is so angry about? Is is he upset simply because that Peter is eating and breaking the Jewish dietary laws? No, that's not it at all. In fact, it's kind of just the opposite. And then beyond that, it's something far more important. You see, this encounter happened in the city of Antioch, which is in northern Syria. It's a long way from Jerusalem. But it followed a meeting in Jerusalem where Many of the apostles and Christian leaders came together. They, they came together to address some issues that this new family of faith was kind of creating. Here's the problem. These Gentiles were accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the community didn't quite know what to do about it. And the problem was it was absolutely certain what was going on because these Gentiles, these outsiders that had been you know, banned from everything, these Gentiles were now receiving the Holy Spirit. And so it was absolutely evident that they had been included in the family of God. And so there was no choice really but for these, for these Jews at the, at the Jerusalem council to say, yes, these Gentiles are part of the family of faith. But, they said, but they said, Jesus was a Jew. And God chose the Jewish people, and so if you're going to accept Jesus as Savior, then you need to accept him through the Jewish laws. You need to keep these laws if you're going to become part of the family of faith. And Paul stands up and he says no. He stands up and he defends him. He says salvation comes through Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. And he says to Peter, why are you burdening these Gentiles with the law that you were never able to keep yourself? And isn't it a slap in the face? Listen, isn't it a slap in the face to say that the work of Jesus on the cross, that his precious blood is not sufficient, that somehow we have to add our little bit in order for salvation 
to come through faith alone in Jesus. And you can imagine that was a business meeting that got a little hot. Well, finally, after much debate, Peter, who was a key leader in the Christian church at that moment, he, we, he stands up. And we find his words in Acts 15, 7. It says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So Peter, his argument won the day. James, who's kind of the leader of the Jerusalem church, he, he stands up and he kind of proclaims it to be true. In Acts 15, 20, we find his kind of blessing. He said, yes, they're part of the family. No, they don't have to keep all the laws. But listen, we would appreciate, Gentiles, if you would stay away from food that's offered to idols and stay away from blood. And if you do that, then you're welcome. The Gentiles are in the family of faith based on faith alone. You'd think that would be the end of it. And so Peter, a little while later, he's off in Antioch. That's where our passage is today. And he's fellowship with his new Gentile friends. And they're eating, and he's eating what they're eating. And, and he himself defended this very thing in Jerusalem, and everything's great until the Jews from Jerusalem show up, and then Peter is very Jewish really quick. The scripture says he withdraws from his new friends. Doesn't that kind of just rub you the wrong way, doesn't it? He's distant and aloof. There's an ugly word. And he's leading by his behavior because it says Barnabas acts much the same way. And it says that Peter is afraid of what the Jews might do to him. I was thinking this week, we've seen this side of Peter before, haven't we? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? And you can almost hear the rooster crow at such a moment. And maybe now you begin to kind of feel in your heart, you know, why is it that Paul is so angry with Peter? Is he angry because he's eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles? No, that's, that's not it at all. Is he angry because Peter's being a hypocrite? Well, yes, partly. Three times he calls him a hypocrite, but it's far more than that. It's if Paul is saying, Peter, why are you adding requirements that you were never able to keep? Why are you adding requirements in order that these Gentiles can have a loving and intimate and eternal relationship with the living God. You walked with Jesus, Peter. You heard his voice. And you know that he was angriest with the Pharisees who were doing the very same thing that you're doing at this moment. Can you begin to see why Paul is a little bent out of shape? Peter, you are to be an open hand and welcoming and drawing people into the life of faith, but instead you just put up a stiff arm and you just became a barrier, a stumbling block to the Gentiles. 
And it doesn't get much worse than that. So now listen again to Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, the dietary laws or any, anything else, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in, in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We are saved by our faith alone. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say, by faith alone. Don't leave that other fellow out. Now, by faith alone, turn the other way. You kind of peter out on me on that second one there. We are saved by faith alone. And so this account of Paul being so angry with Peter is recorded in Galatians. And so really we have two stories going on here. We have the story uh, of Paul and Peter and that kind of conflict but we also have now that this is illustrative. This is an illustration for the people at Galatia. Because what they're doing is they're doing the very same thing that Peter was doing. They're adding requirements. They're slipping back into legalism. And so Paul again is upset with them. And I think of any church in the New Testament that Paul is most upset with these people in Galatia. And what that tells me is that, these, that there's a continuous danger for contemporary believers to do the same. These accounts are recorded and preserved by the Spirit as a teaching and a warning for us today. So what can we, what can we glean from these accounts? We are saved by grace alone. First thing I want to draw your attention to is I, I think the contemporary church needs a fuller understanding of faith. We, thankfully and humbly today, proclaimed that we are saved by faith alone. Amen? It's insulting to the perfect and sacrificial gift of Jesus on the cross to believe that we need or can add anything. We are saved by faith alone. So what is faith? What is faith? If, if one of you, that one person that God lays on your heart, you know, he comes to you or she comes to you and says, what is faith? How are you going to respond? Is faith that moment that you began to kind of intellectually understand that Jesus is the Son of God who paid for the sins of the world? Is, is that faith? That's partly, yes. Is it is, is faith that moment where you walk the aisle and you said, Jesus is now my Lord. I've asked him to save me. Is that faith the moment that you walk that aisle? In part, it is. Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Yes. But what does that mean? What does it look like in your daily life? What does faith look like? Listen to three theologians as they struggled with that question. Are you with me? Are you with me, church? Just say amen. All right, I want you to listen. Here's three theologians that are struggling with what faith looks like. Number one is this, a radical commitment of the whole man to the living Christ. A commitment that includes knowledge, trust, and obedience. Faith is not mere intellectual assent but an inward spiritual change in man. It is not simply a new comprehension 
but a new creation. It's written by a man named Donald Blosh, a theologian. Does that represent kind of your understanding? And I'll just tell you right away, there's something a whole lot more going on than me kind of understanding that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. It's a whole lot more than me just walking down this aisle one Sunday morning and, and professing that Jesus is Lord. Because now we're looking at kind of radical words, a radical commitment. Here's the second one. Faith is not simply surrender, but adoring surrender. That's lovely. It's not a mere sense of dependence, but an act of intellectual commitment and the confession of holiness, which is able to save and keep and bless forever. A confession of holiness. Those are the words that jumped off the page at me. The scripture says this, be holy, be holy, be sanctified, be different, be peculiar than anybody else in the world because of this faith that you say you have. Be holy because you're God is holy. Forsyth. The third one is this. Faith is complete enslavement and complete liberation. Karl Barth. Is that your idea of faith? Radical commitment. An inward spiritual change. A new creation. Complete enslavement and complete liberation. Listen, as I look at those words and kind of look out, not just not this church, but just the contemporary church of America, frankly, I think our modern understanding of faith is pretty shallow compared to these words. This isn't just Paul. Listen to Galatians 2.20 again. Listen, please. Galatians 2.20. This isn't just Paul speaking but this is a representation of what faith should be. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ living in me. Christ bursting out of me. The world able to see Christ a little bit more evidently in my life every day. This is faith. This is what the scriptures say. A radical commitment, an inward change. Surely faith begins with understanding who Jesus is. And it moves forward to understand that he forgave us for that mountain of sin that we could not cleanse ourselves. And then it moves forward to a radical commitment that affects every piece of our life. There's no compartmentalizing. There's no one way I act on Sunday and a different way that I act on Friday night. This is faith, and it touches everything. And that sounds much more extreme, much more comprehensive, much more revolutionary than I believe kind of our modern understanding of what faith is. Something that sounds like, you know, I believe that I'm covered by grace, so as I fail, I can quickly ask for forgiveness and continue with little or no consequences and little or no change in my life. Which brings me to the second thing. Listen, one of the arguments of the early Jewish community, these men that were called Judaizers, the Judaizers, in other words, were trying to pull them back into the Jewish faith. 
But they insisted that Gentiles come to God through the law. And there was a, a word for this. And whoo, it's a, it's a monster. I could tell you to turn to your neighbor and say it, but I, it, it would be fun, but it, it wouldn't go good, I don't imagine. Antinomianism. Whoo, seven syllables. That's a whopper. Work that into a conversation tomorrow, would you? It's quite the whopper of a word, but it's easy to understand. Because, listen, because I'm covered with grace. This was the fear of the Judaizers. The fear that the Gentiles, because they would say, listen, I'm covered by grace. I'm saved by faith alone, and therefore, it doesn't really matter what my behavior is. Because I'm absolutely covered with grace. I don't have to adhere to the law. I'm going to just overemphasize grace. And the fear was that the Gentiles would run amok. They feared that their attitude would become, we can do whatever we want because we're covered with grace. And actually, although this kind of became a heresy, I understand their concern. For instance, listen to this. Romans 6.1. The Apostle Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? Now that's kind of a mind twister there, but here's, here's what Paul is saying. There seemed to be some in Rome who had this antinomian attitude that we aren't tied to the law, we're saved by grace, by faith alone, so we can pretty much do whatever we want to do. In modern parlance, you know, we can just live out our own truth and we can be our best self and don't judge me. And here's where it gets really good. I don't know how they came to this conclusion but it certainly is twisted. They came to the conclusion that by adding their sin, what they're doing is they're really helping Jesus just be absolutely marvelous and wonderful. Here's the idea. Here it is. You ready? Here it is. So he says, he says if I continue to sin, that just means I'm going to need more and more grace. And the more grace to cover up my sin, the greater Jesus is. And so by sinning, what I'm really doing is showing how great God is. Isn't that marvelous, my ministry to the world? How does Paul answer that? I'll tell you, he ends it with an exclamation point. He says, may it never be. May it never be. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say? Are we continue to sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? It's the same message we find in our passage today. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have uh, been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Same response. May it never be. But it seems to me that in the contemporary church, antinomianism has kind of raised its ugly head again. That we have so overemphasized grace that we can do whatever we want as long as at the end of the day we kind of lay our head down ask for a covering of, uh, of our sins, and we're good. And I think Paul would give us the same response. May it never be. Brothers and sisters, we're saying this faith is this comprehensive, radical change from the inside out. Paul says, how can I continue to sin if I have died to sin? You and I are held to an incredibly high standard. Yes, we come by faith, but then the response to that incredible gift is death to self so that we can live in Christ. Does that make sense to you? That's an overwhelming silence on that. 
Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, to do away with the law, but what he did do was give us this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us so that we can apply his good word, his good law, into every facet of our life. The incredible gift. So as a sub-summary, I just want to ask you again, does your understanding of saved by grace include a radical commitment, an inward change, a new creation. No compartmentalizing. I'm not going to act one way here on Sunday and then another way at the workplace tomorrow. But the inner man is being changed to look more and more like Jesus, a complete enslavement and a complete liberation. Is your faith, is our faith wondrously, dramatically affecting every area? Think back over your life in that we are to be more and more like our Savior every day. So is your image, do people see Jesus more clearly in you than last year, than five years ago? Have you grown in your faith? Is it transforming you? Or are you kind of the same? How about this? Is your faith so radical that you live differently than many of the other people in that sphere of influence? Is Christ bursting out over? Or do we kind of just live the same as everybody else? Although you may never have heard the word antinomian, does it reflect kind of some of our choices? It's all right. God understands. God will cover. I can pretty much do whatever I want. As long as I lay my head down at night, I ask for the blanket of forgiveness, and I rest knowing that I'm covered in grace. We are saved by faith alone. But I do believe we need to expand our understanding of what faith is. Amen? So then what about works and behavior? Peter says in Acts 15, 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Okay, good. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by the grace you have been saved through faith and not by that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then James adds in there, just to muddy the water a bit, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And over the centuries there's been this kind of much been made about the argument between Paul and James, and really it's much ado about nothing. Because I think if Paul and James were standing back to back, they were reading each other's letters, you know, I I don't think there'd be any disagreement at all. Because Jesus says, Matthew 12, uh, 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. How do we kind of come together with this idea. Is it, is it works or is it faith? Listen, fruit doesn't make the tree. Fruit is the natural, observable result 
and proof of a healthy tree. Does that make sense? Work doesn't make the faith. It's the free gift of God. But works is the natural, observable result and proof of a healthy faith. How's your fruit? Are you bearing much fruit? Salvation is the work of Christ. The call to repentance is the work of the Spirit. We add the smallest of all things. Yes, Lord, I accept this incredible gift. And now since I have accepted this incredible gift, how do we respond? We respond by serving. What else can we do? Do you see in this passage why Paul was angry with Peter? Instead of inviting and being an open hand, he became a barrier. And the contemporary church has to be very careful about adding requirements to salvation that aren't any, anywhere in the scriptures. The contemporary church has to be very careful about saying, we're going to make sure that somebody's cleaned up entirely before we're going to let them join the church. Because I'll just tell you what, there's nobody here. There's nobody here that's all cleaned up. Amen? The contemporary church needs to expand our understanding of faith. It begins as we walk the aisle, but then we're saved. We are saved at a point in time, but then we're saved through that increase of faith that's going to go home. Until we go home, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Antinomianism, may it never be. Works, they simply burst out of a lively faith. May that be. Instead of may it never be, may that be for us today. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious Father, we thank you for every gift that you have given. Above all, we thank you for the perfect gift of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. We can add nothing. We come humbly before you, just thanking you for what you have accomplished. Help us, Father, to have a faith that is alive, that covers every part of our lives, that brings you joy and fulfillment in our own lives. Watch over us, guide our steps. May our faith and love for you increase every day. In Jesus' name, amen.